Welcome to MSRB Podcast. I'm Rita McLaughlin, the MSRB's Chief Education Officer. The Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board podcasts are designed to enhance understanding of the municipal securities market. On today's show, the MSRB's General Counsel, Michael Post, will discuss political contributions and prohibitions on municipal securities business and municipal advisory business. So to start, Mike, I have a couple questions I'd like to ask you. So Mike, what's the purpose of MSRB Rule G37? Why was this rule created and how long has it been in existence? Well, it's been in existence since about 1994, so some 25 years. It was created because the MSRB wanted to prevent fraud in the municipal securities market and wanted to promote confidence in the integrity of the market. The main focus of the rule is on quid pro quo, or I make this political contribution to you and you award me that municipal securities business type of corruption. But it's also directed at the mere appearance of that sort of corruption because even that bad appearance could undermine confidence in the municipal securities market. So leading up to 1994, there were wide press reports of this type of activity in the municipal securities market. So the MSRB at that time was concerned that something needed to be done to improve confidence. So Michael, can you give us a bit of an overview of MSRB Rule G37? I mean, you share with us why it was created and how long it's been in existence, but give us sort of a broad brush of what are some of the main components of the rule? Sure. And I think I won't go into a lot of detail at this point, but just to maybe help us as we talk about more of these things later on, one main element of the rule is a ban on business for two years meaning municipal securities business for a dealer and municipal advisory business for a municipal advisor. And that municipal securities business for a dealer is negotiated new issuances or private placements for the most part. There's also discussion in the rule of contributions that are excluded and wouldn't trigger that two-year ban on business. There's a section that prohibits the solicitation and coordination of contributions from any person or political action committee. There's a section that discusses all of the disclosure that is required to be made by broker-dealers and municipal advisors on a quarterly basis. And then there are some provisions in the rule that have to do with two types of exemptions that can be given. And so who does this rule apply to and why? It applies to the MSRB's regulated entities. So it applies to dealers in municipal securities whether they're securities firms or whether that is an operation inside of a bank, and municipal advisors. So at the firm level, then it applies to a number of their professionals. So the people that are engaging in the municipal securities activities within a dealer or the municipal advisory activities within a municipal advisor. And it includes the people that supervise those that are primarily doing those things and can go up to people that even in turn supervise those supervisors, all the way to the point of the chief executive officer, typically wouldn't include someone who performs more sort of ministerial or clerical duties at an entity, for example. You mentioned that someone who works in a broker-dealer firm or who's in a municipal advisory firm, can they make political contributions for someone that they're not eligible to vote for? Well, that raises an important distinction in the rule. They can make political contributions as they wish, subject to whatever other kind of campaign finance laws or limitations apply. It's just that if somebody makes a contribution that isn't excluded by the rule, it might trigger a two-year ban on business with the municipality 
that the contribution to an official level is made. So people are free, especially the way this rule is attempting to balance everyone's First Amendment rights to express themselves in politics with the need to preserve the integrity of the municipal securities market. It's just that if they do make a ban-triggering contribution, then the firm would need to abide by that ban for two years and not do business with the entity. If they really want to avoid a ban, people can make a contribution up to $250 per election for someone to whom they are entitled to vote. So what's the rationale behind the ban on business for two years? The rationale behind that was really going back to the purpose of the rule we talked about, to address even the appearance of this quid pro quo corruption or pay to play, because really the closeness in time of the contribution and the municipal securities business being awarded can give rise to the inference that that contribution was made and it played some role in that particular dealer or municipal advisor being awarded business. So some timeline needs to be sort of reasonably set upon in the board's expert judgment. And the board believed that the risk of someone thinking that a contribution played a role in the award of business more than two years later was not substantial enough. But if it is close in time, as within two years, then if it was a risk, it would look like the contribution might have played some role in the award. And on a related question, you had mentioned that there is a minimum dollar amount for a contribution that can be made that doesn't violate uh, Rule G37. Can you share with us again, what is that amount? And then what was the rationale about having an amount at that level? Yes, it's $250 per election. And an important thing to know is that that in a particular race, that can be multiple phases of the race. So a person who's entitled to vote in that race could make a $250 contribution the candidate that they favor in a primary, and then perhaps a runoff, and then the general election. And the reason for the $250 is it was thought that that's not high enough to look like it would be a big cause in the award of business to a firm. And yet it's high enough to be more than sort of a token level of support. And I think more recently we've seen that contributions of that level actually can be meaningful Certainly today with fundraising over the internet and we've seen campaigns that have aggregated large numbers of relatively smaller contributions than that, even large numbers of $100 contributions to amount to meaningful support for a campaign. So as someone who works for a broker-dealer or a municipal advisory firm, can they contribute to an existing member of Congress for whom they can't vote without there being any type of van? As you know, Congress doesn't really have any role as it relates to the selection of, say, a municipal advisor. Right. If it's an existing member of Congress and they are not running for any seat that would be covered by Rule G37, that would be a municipal office. They're just remaining as an incumbent in Congress or maybe running for re-election as a member of Congress, then G37 would not apply. But it does apply to contributions for a campaign for federal office if the person is otherwise covered. So one way this has come up in the past and is important for people to be aware of is, for example, even someone running for president, if they're a sitting governor and they have enough 
influence over the award of municipal securities business or municipal advisory business in their state, then a contribution to that person's campaign for the presidency could trigger a two-year ban on business in the state where the person is a sitting governor. And this becomes true also for the vice presidential candidates. So even if it's not an issue for the president, when there comes a time that there's a nominee and a person selects a running mate and contributions might be made to a ticket, if the vice presidential running mate is, for example, a sitting governor, then the same issues can come up. So what about an instance for someone who is working at a municipal advisory firm or is a financial professional with a broker-dealer firm and falls within the standards of being subject to G37? Can their spouses make contributions from like their joint account or just in general? Yes, spouses can make contributions. G37 applies to the professionals in the municipal securities dealer or the municipal advisory firm and not to their spouses. But there are provisions that apply to the regulated entities and their professionals that are still important when it comes to spousal contributions. So for example, G37 prohibits soliciting contributions. So it would be a compliance problem if a professional at a regulated entity were to direct the contribution by her husband or by his wife. There's also a prohibition on the rule on circumvention or efforts to get around the rule. It prohibits regulated entities and their professionals from doing anything indirectly that they couldn't do directly. So it'd also be important to steer clear of that so that a spousal contribution wouldn't seem to be under the facts of the particular case, a contribution by the regulated professional, him or herself. In terms of joint accounts, it can be helpful to make sure that these other provisions do not get triggered if the spouse is making a contribution from a joint account, that the spouse be the one to sign the check if the spouse is not making the contribution from an individual account. In this day and age, contributions may be made by credit card payment. So it would be important if it weren't an individual credit card of the spouses, but were a joint credit card for the spouse to be the one to authorize the charge. So can you define for us the difference between when a contribution is solicited versus when they're coordinating contributions? So the rule is prohibiting soliciting or coordinating contributions from any person or political action committee. And the solicitation is a communication to encourage perhaps the contribution by the person coordinating is a little different. Coordinating is usually what's termed in the campaign finance area, bundling, which is people are perhaps making contributions of their own accord or they intend to, but the person who's coordinating perhaps arranges for them all to be at the same time and is the person that perhaps delivers the checks to the campaign that are made on the accounts of all the individual contributors or is the one to sort of relay the word to the campaign. And, you know, the reason this is important is because what has happened is the person who's coordinating or bundling in many ways is getting credit with the campaign or the official who's running for office to some degree, even though it's other people's money that is being given to the campaign. 
So there are bond battle initiatives, and part of the bond battle initiative process is that the voters come to the voting booth and make a determination as to whether or not a state or local government should invest or build or issue bonds for a new infrastructure project. And so in some of these instances across the country, there are what are known as bond ballot campaigns. So how do bond ballot campaigns differ from a general contribution or contributions to those types of campaigns? Well, at least for the bond ballot campaign, the MSRB has believed that there is less direct connection to the decisions whether to award business to a particular firm. And so the rule requires a significant amount of disclosure with respect to the contributions that one might make in support of a bond ballot initiative but the rule would not trigger a ban on business in the jurisdiction where the bond ballot initiative was being held. So in different states, depending on the local law, depending on the state constitution, the bond ballot initiative might be necessary, really in a sense, to get the citizens or taxpayers consent to the issuance of the bonds, considering they're the ones that ultimately will be bearing the burden of the debt. And one or more issuances might come out of that initiative if it passes or if it's approved. And so what the rule requires is disclosure of the contributions that are made if they're more than $250 from someone who wasn't entitled to vote in the bond ballot initiative. And identification of the bond issuances that result from the initiative if it's approved, as well as the municipal securities business or municipal advisory business that might be awarded to the firm under those issuances that have been approved. And what this allows the public to do is to scrutinize the potential connection between the contributions and the eventual award of business. But there wouldn't be a two-year bound business that would prohibit the firm from being awarded business so we've talked a bit about sort of, you know, standard contributions, now bond ballot contributions. Are there any instances in which an in-kind contribution counts or how is that taken into consideration? In-kind contributions count because the definition of contribution in the rule is very broad, focusing on something of value rather than just cash if a person is providing materials to the campaign or maybe a venue for a fundraising event that otherwise would require rental at some level, then those things are of value and they're considered to be contributions under the broad definition in the rule. As part of the whole campaign process, we have the bond ballot sort of starting the project, we have the actual, be it the primary or the general election. But then after, say, someone wins the election and they're going into office, there's frequently an inaugural event. How does a contribution to an inaugural event play into Rule G37? Again, the definition of contribution is very broad under the rule, and it covers these contributions or fundings of an inaugural event. So... A contribution that's more than the excluded amount can trigger a two-year ban on business for the firm or for the professional from the firm that made the contribution to the inaugural. The same is true of other expenses of transition 
But it's important to bear in mind, the reason I mentioned the excluded contributions is because if a person, for example, did not make the contribution that they might have made up to $250 because they were entitled to vote in the race in the general election, then they basically have up to that amount still available to give. So they can give that to the inaugural event instead. But you also mentioned that there are some potential automatic exemptions to the role for an individual that maybe has made an inadvertent contribution. How does that get addressed? Yes, there are two exceptions. There's one called the automatic exemption, which the regulated entity, if they meet the conditions, can really apply to themselves. And then there's a way to seek an uh, exemption by application. And they both have different conditions on them. Some of them are kind of getting at similar things. So for the automatic exemption, the regulated entity needs to have discovered that the contribution was made within four months of its making and then needs to be able to arrange for the return of the contribution from the official or the campaign within 60 days of discovery. For the exemption by application, the firm can apply, if they're a FINRA member, to FINRA for a either conditional or unconditional exemption. And if it's a bank dealer, then they would apply to their appropriate regulatory authority, the bank agency. And similarly, the rule lays out a number of considerations as to whether it should be granted. And among these, the decider would look to the amount of the contribution, the efforts that the firm made to get it returned, whether the firm had policies and procedures in place to prevent this, and whether the firm has undertaken and what it has undertaken in terms of any sort of remediation to improve its ability to print this sort of thing anymore. And so depending on those considerations, an exemption might be granted. And FINRA, for example, has published explanations for why it has granted an exemption or not granted an exemption when it's been asked. And the MSRB has made that information also available on its website so that those who might be considering whether to apply can review the history of that process and consider what points they might like to make in support of an application. Let's talk a little bit about some of the constitutional questions related to G37. So, of course, the MSRB was very careful in crafting the rule in 1994 with the very important First Amendment rights that are implicated. And it happens that there was a challenge on First Amendment grounds so it was reviewed by the D.C. Circuit Court, and it was upheld on First Amendment grounds. The court found that the rule furthered a compelling interest in preventing even the appearance of quid pro quo corruption. And the court also found that the rule was narrowly tailored so as not to potentially restrict First Amendment rights more than necessary to further that compelling government interest. So are there other markets other than a municipal securities market that have a rule like G37? Yes, there are. I think recognizing the effectiveness of the rule in promoting the integrity of the municipal securities market, there are some other regulators that have developed rules that are modeled on G37. The CFTC has a similar rule for their regulated entities' dealings with municipal entities. 
the SEC has adopted a rule for the investment advisors that it regulates in terms of contributions that they might make to officials of municipal entities and then seeking to do business for compensation as investment advisors with those entities. And FINRA has adopted a rule also similarly modeled to address FINRA member firms that might engage in distribution or solicitation activities with municipal entities on behalf of investment advisors. So one of the things we hadn't talked about is what are the consequences for violating G37? Well, the consequences are really just the full set of potential disciplinary measures in an SEC enforcement action or FINRA enforcement action. We talked earlier about how there's no disciplinary measure for the mere making of a contribution. So people are free to contribute. If a person or their firm has no interest in pursuing municipal securities business in a particular state where someone would like to make a contribution to someone running for office, then they're free to make it, subject to whatever other campaign finance law restrictions there may be. Because if they are willing to abide by the ban on business in that jurisdiction for two years, then the risk of the appearance within a short period of time between a contribution and the award of business in the same jurisdiction it doesn't come about. But if somebody does make a contribution that triggers the two-year ban on business, and then despite the ban, they do business in that jurisdiction within the two-year period, then they would have violated the rule. And the SEC or FINRA or bank agency could enforce the rule against them. And there could be civil money penalties. Professionals that were involved could be suspended from the industry for a temporary period or permanently barred from the securities industry. So I'm going to ask you, what difference do you think that G37 has made to the municipal securities market? I think G37 has made a tremendous difference. We mentioned the other regulators that have developed rules modeled on G37, largely because the effectiveness of the rule in promoting the integrity of the market is widely recognized. And the press accounts of questionable conduct that led to the development and adoption of the rule are not of the like that we have seen in the municipal securities market for some time. And when I talk to participants in the market that have really known the industry well and have been involved in the municipal securities market since before G37 came into place, everybody knows that we do not want to go back to the way things were before Rule G37 was adopted. And everybody, I think, roundly considers it to have been a very successful measure. So as a closing remark, what would you share with our listening audience for this podcast of two things that they should remember about G37? One thing that's probably important to remember is the anti-circumvention provision we talked about. So there are things that are clear under the rule that could trigger a ban on business or result in a violation. But because we're talking about money in this way, there are a lot of ways money can flow and money can be moved. And so I would encourage folks to be conservative in arranging their conduct because of that risk that something that they couldn't do directly might be being done indirectly. The information on the disclosures that regulated entities make on a quarterly basis to the MSRB 
that are required by Rule G37, the MSRB in turn redisseminates to the public on its EMA or Electronic Municipal Market Access System. So if any member of the public, a journalist or market participant is interested in reviewing the disclosures that regulated entities may have made as to whether they've made contributions or the municipal securities business or municipal advisory business that they've engaged in that's covered by the rule can access that information on EMMA. Well, Michael, thank you so much. We've had today Michael Post, the MSRB's general counsel, discuss with us political contributions and the prohibitions on municipal securities business and municipal advisory business. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us, and please stay tuned to our upcoming new series of podcasts. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at msrbevents at msrb.org. The information provided in this MSRB podcast is intended for educational purposes only and provides a general overview of the subject matter. The content of the podcast is not intended to provide and does not constitute legal, investment, tax, business, or other advice, and is not an MSRB rule or an amendment to or interpretation of any MSRB rule. Compliance with conduct recommended in the podcast does not mean that a firm or an individual has complied fully with obligations under the MSRB rules, other self-regulatory rules, or laws, or regulations. The MSRB podcasts are the sole property of the MSRB. You may access and download the MSRB podcast only for your educational, non-commercial use. You may not reproduce them in whole or in part, in any form, or reference them in any publication without the MSRB's prior written consent. Copyright 2019, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, all rights reserved. And thank you for listening to MSRB Podcast.